0: poor workers good news to you i'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell
2: If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free.
3: You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor
4: Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, we've set aside the news It's all unions. Unions 101. We have a fantastic panel assembled here today. We've got Michelle Eisen with the Starbucks Workers United, Lee Diaz with New York University Graduate Student Union, Graham Gale with REI Union Soho, Johnny Lane with the Delta AFA, and Hayden Wright with the Mine Workers. Adam said it before the show started, if we can't answer your question with this panel it's not going to get answered folks um if you want to be part of the program we have a phone number the line is going to be open but the best way to get your questions in about unions is to text the show you can text the show at 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail throughout the week, and we might play it on the next program. Uh, so just a reminder, folks, if you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, or if you just want to, to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online. We are anywhere you find anything online. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, wherever you get your podcasts, all at The Valley Labor Report. Uh, Just a reminder, your support does help us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation or buy our hat, you can go to our website, tvlr.fm donate. You can also become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash thevalleylaborreport. If you're a member of a union, you should get your local to sponsor the show as well. You can reach out to me for more details on that. And so, folks, with that, we are just going to jump right into right into the show. Like I said, this is going to be a Unions 101. We're not talking about any news today. We're just we want, you know, and and this is a show, this is a, a, a an episode that we do every now and then, maybe a couple times a year, because there is so little understanding of of unions in this country, of how workers can come together and make their lives better, make their jobs better, make their life better for their families and their communities. I think that's possibly by design. Uh, But nevertheless, you know, a lot of folks, they're going to come out of high school. They're not even going to be able to tell you what a union is, what it does. So we are going to get down to the basics. What is a union? How do I form one? Why are they good? What is a worker even? What is organizing? What do we mean by that? We're going to get to all of that and more. And that's all we're going to do on this show today, folks. 90 minutes, 90 minutes of just what is unions? What is unions? That's all we're talking about today. Um, so, uh, we, like I said in the intro, we have a fantastic, a fantastic panel assembled here today. And um, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to... Uh, Pass the mic. We're going to go around the horn. Let everybody introduce themselves. Uh, tell us their name, their union, and why they're active in the labor movement. Why is it that that you know? Because all, all of these folks they have, um, you know, I maybe devoting their life to the labor movement. Maybe a bit of an overstatement, but a a good amount of all of these people, all of their time is taken up by advocating for their co-workers and for themselves on and off the job uh, and for other people so I, we're gonna go around the horn everybody's gonna in- take a couple of minutes to introduce themselves uh, and while they do that for our YouTube and Facebook audience I am going to um, I'm gonna fix our frames so <laughs> uh, we've got a lot of people on the zoom here so it is uh, I got to make sure everything looks nice. So uh, let's start off with uh, Lee Diaz. Hi,
5: everybody. My name is Lee Diaz. Um, my full name is Leandra, but everybody calls me Lee. I go by she/her pronouns, and I'm a graduate worker at New York University. And um, I've been a, work, a worker with the Graduate Student Organizing Committee, which we abbreviate as GSOC, um, for almost six years now, um, since starting a PhD in American Studies. Um, I, this is part of UAW Local 2110. I was recently a delegate to the Con- UAW Constitutional Convention um, and am part of Unite All Workers for Democracy, which is a reform caucus of the UAW. And in addition to that, I'm also, like I said, getting a PhD in American studies and I study how capital moves, but people don't. I got involved with the labor movement because I had a health scare two or three years ago. I knew when I got to grad school that I was gonna be in a union. Like I knew that they were good in theory, like it was good in my politics, but I never saw myself as an organizer or a leader in the labor movement until I got sick. And it became clear when I was trying to get healthcare for Crohn's disease, which is an autoimmune disease, um, that the only people who were sticking up for me were my union. It wasn't the university. It wasn't my employer. A lot of times my doctor's hands were tied and it sure as hell wasn't the insurance company. And so when I got better, I realized that this was something that was super important because even if I, as someone who's like highly credentialed, highly educated, basically getting a PhD in bureaucracy, had difficulty navigating the healthcare landscape and difficulty like engaging with my employer, then so many people must too. And so now I like organize full time. <laughs> yeah. So excited to be here.
4: Fantastic. And uh, for long time and critical listeners of the show, you will know that Lee Diaz has been on the program before. Uh, she is a return guest. We talked to her after the uh New York Union grad students went on strike a couple of years ago, so um that was a that was a good episode and uh, they were able to win what was it a forty percent raise or something insane
5: yeah, over the course of uh the fifteen years between twenty fifteen and twenty thirty we'll have increased our hourly wage by two hundred percent. And Wild. we won, we went from $20 an hour to $26.50 in the first like year of our contract.
4: That's awesome. That's fantastic. All right. Uh so let's just go around the screen. Johnny.
6: Hi. I'm unmuted. Great. Hi, my name is Johnny Lane. I'm a Delta flight attendant. I've been a flight attendant for almost 15 years uh, with Delta, so long career. Um I got started uh, organizing our union at Delta after I had a, Really bad year. And you all just know it's just one of those years where everything goes wrong. My car was stolen. We had a family emergency with my sister. Um, she had a stillborn baby, and then my mom had a mild uh, heart attack scare. It was just awful. So I did have some absences on my record, and those were it. And my manager called me in. And was like, "Hey, what's up with your reliability? Well, we're going to have to put you on, you know, some sort of a we call it probation, like being back on." Um, like a disciplinary action i'm like you know what i had all these tragedies uh where's the compassion where's the gray area that people usually talk about uh well our company talks about in terms of not having a union the gray area is a benefit they could be understanding they could do you favors and so in that moment it seemed like none of that was happening so i was like okay something is wrong here. Something isn't adding up. It's not matching with uh, what they're telling me. And so then um, my friend who some of you have met, uh, Christina, Simone, and she um, had started becoming more active uh, with unionizing in the workplace. And she called me and was like, hey, Johnny, let's meet up. We had our first one-on-one and it didn't take much to convince me to start organizing with her. So we've been organizing with AFA, um, Association of Flight Attendants led by Sarah Nelson for close to six years now. It's been, um, it's been a while. And, that may seem like it's not successful but for an airline our size where our work group we have close to 23,000 flight attendants and so in order for us to even trigger a vote for a union we have to get close to 11 to 12,000 flight attendants to sign authorization cards it is a monumental task and uh, by the time we're done it will be the largest organizing effort in modern labor history for one closed shop. So uh, we're doing a big thing here and it's taking a while, but we're getting there Um, piece by piece. And we're inspired by so many uh, of you who are organizing the work that you're doing, Starbucks, Amazon, REI, just every day. So you're keeping us going. So thank you for that inspiration and the hard work that you all are doing. And we're just glad to be a part of this movement. We're glad that you guys are welcoming us into the labor movement. We really appreciate it.
4: Absolutely. Uh, couldn't be couldn't be more happy to see anybody, uh, anybody and everybody unionizing. So it's 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 good to see that. And I'm glad to have
2: you. Uh, Hayden.
7: Um, Yeah, I'm Hayden Rock. So
8: I'm with the UMWA, which is United Mine Workers of America. And I'm associated with Locals 2245 and 2368 as the auxiliary president. Um, We've actually been on strike for 18 months. So for us, it's a little bit
7: different. We're not just doing new organizing. We're also fighting a huge fight against... We've been on strike against... So a lot of the organizing we've been doing
8: is actually bringing other parts of the labor movement and getting them involved in the strike action that's happening here with us. And we've seen huge turnouts and huge outreach from Sarah Nelson, from Liz Schuler, from the steel workers that have come from all over the country to come down and show support. So just keeping the message out there when you have a big fight like that going on. And we are, we're not looking at a tentative agreement right now. We're still on strike and we could still use that support and solidarity. And you only gain that through a union. So it's us on strike here is 900, but we've had 6 million brothers and sisters that have had our back for 18 months. So that is one big reason why unions are so important, because you're not alone. Hearing your stories, it was the union that kept you from fighting those battles alone. That's why everyone deserves that opportunity. And I'm so excited to be here with all of you and to hear your stories.
2: Absolutely. Graham?
9: Hi. um, I can't even express how honored and excited I am um, to be here in the presence of such incredible organizers. Um, I guess I'll introduce myself. I'm Graham. Um, My pronouns are they, them. Um, I work at REI in New York City. Um, We recently unionized in March and are beginning our contract negotiations. So starting to get our first contract on paper. Um, I'm part of the bargaining committee. so I'm actually sitting at the table uh, with a group of my coworkers uh, hashing it out with our employer to get you know fair fair wages, fair working conditions. Um, and I became active in the labor movement just because I was seeing a lot of injustice and mistreatment of myself, and my coworkers, um, especially coming back to work after the pandemic um people's safety was not being respected um their general humanity wasn't being respected and continues to be disrespected um so yeah i i came for the workplace uh kind of organizing but i'm staying for uh the amazing national effort that is happening right now um, so yeah, it, it is a huge honor to be here and, um, thank you so much for having me.
4: Thank you for being willing to take the time, Graham. And, uh, last but certainly not least, Michelle Eisen.
10: Hi everyone. Thank you so much for having me here today. Um, I'm going to echo what Graham said to be in the presence of such strong, amazing organizers in this current, um, labor movement climate in our country is, is really, phenomenal. Um, I'm a Starbucks barista here in Buffalo, New York. Uh, I started with the company in uh, August of 2010, so just past my 12-year anniversary. And what brought me to Starbucks to begin with is um, I'm a production stage manager. Uh, I've been working in the local um, professional theater scene since college, Um, But that doesn't come with health benefits. So I was looking for a part-time job that was flexible, that would allow me to have health benefits. And that was where Starbucks came in. That was their deal. You know, that's who they professed to be. I had been a longtime Starbucks customer, and I knew they had a reputation for how they, they treated their employees. And I knew how I was treated as a customer. So this seemed like a perfect fit. And I think the early part of my time with the company um, they they did live up to those professed values that they have. You know, they say they're a progressive company and they care about their employees and the community and the environment. Um, but then things started to slip and it was a really clear shift in the, the company sort of policy when it came to what we're calling profits over partners. Starbucks calls their employees partners, which is, it was coined because we're all given stock in the company. Uh, but it's since been used to as a really manipulative term to make us think that those of us on the the floors of these cafes, the hourly workers, are somehow have an equal stake or an equal say in the company as, you know, upper management and corporate, which is just simply not the case. Um, and I got involved in the organizing campaign here in Buffalo, right at the beginning where it started, um, not because I knew what I was doing, or I knew necessarily what was going to come of it. <laughs> Um, but because I had already made the decision uh in spring of twenty twenty one to leave the company, you know we had worked through the bulk of the pandemic uh we were not taken care of a lot of what Graham is saying, I'm echoing uh this is a billion dollar multi billion dollar multinational corporation, and they were simply not taking care of us at a time when they a should have been and b absolutely could have been um on top of that. You had a company like Starbucks on all of these financial shows with the CEO boasting record-breaking profits in the middle of the pandemic. Um, not just regular profits, record-breaking profits. And I, we've got full-time workers in these sh- shops that can't pay their rent or get groceries based on what this company is is paying us. And on top of that, we're in the middle of a global pandemic where we're putting our lives and our families' lives at risk every single day. Um, so I was going to be done. I was feeling incredibly undervalued. And then a, a couple months after I'd made the decision to sort of start leaving the process of leaving the company, a coworker asked me what I thought about the potential of Starbucks unionizing, um, to which I said I had never thought about that. Um, I didn't know a ton about it. My father and my grandfather were in unions growing up, and I knew that our health benefits were really great because of it. And I knew that it was generally a good thing, but I didn't know a lot about service union, um, service industry unions. It's just not something you hear all that much about. It's a very notoriously difficult uh, industry to unionize to begin with. I certainly didn't know much about coffee shop unions. Um, there had been a local coffee shop here in Buffalo called Spot Coffee that had managed to unionize in the summer of 2019. And that kind of put the bug in everybody's ear that maybe, um, but then there was a pandemic. So those mm. conversations came to a close. Um, but all of a sudden here it was, and it looked, it sounded like the best option, you know, not having to leave a company I'd invested over a decade of my life in and working from the inside out with my coworkers to ensure we have a bigger voice on the job and to improve our working conditions. And so I said, yes, very naively and not at all knowing what that was going to entail (laughs) and very idealistically, assuming that the company would give us a little bit of pushback, but that ultimately they would be the company that they say they are and acknowledge that this is the right move and lead the industry like they, like they do. And instead a year later, we're still fighting for our lives. Now, Mm. my store was the first to unionize. We were successful and, and able to do that. Um, and it has started a national movement for this campaign. As of yesterday, I think we have 235 unionized locations across the US, which encompasses just under, I believe, 6,000 baristas. Um, but there are 400,000 approximately baristas, Starbucks baristas in the United States. So, you know, we still are working really, really hard, but we're getting stronger every single day. And we are able to do this alongside all of these wonderful folks also organizing their workplaces and Amazon. And it's just a really fantastic, amazing climate to be a part of, because what Hayden said is it's the support of fellow unions. I mean, we're, we were never doing this alone. This one little mm-hmm. store in Buffalo that was able to do this back in December of 2021 did not get there alone. It would have been impossible for us to do that alone. Um, So I never want to lose sight of that um, and continue to acknowledge it because it's what's going to allow all of us here to keep fighting this fight.
4: Yeah, the you know, you mentioned that you've been working there over a decade and that is a long time for, you know a a service job right that's not common um and then john rocky in in the chat uh mentioned that and uh also wanted to shout out we've got david story in the chat appreciate that he's co-founder of the show and always love to see him continuing to engage and so before we go to our first break let's um before we even get into unions what what is a union what does a union do what is a worker you know there the, i one of the things that i tried to do when i was thinking about the panel is is i i did try to get several different types of what of what we would call workers, right? And so we've got people, you know, uh, Hayden isn't, uh, she hasn't actually been, you know, she's not actually a coal miner, right? But she's very much, uh, you know, those are her people. Um, we've got flight attendants um, and and grad workers and service workers. And and so this is a, uh, and we've got people who have negotiated contracts, people who've been on strike, people who are currently on strike, people organizing new unions who've been doing that for, so, you know, a really wide and kind of representative swath of what's going on in labor in the country. And so because of the, the diversity of, of, of the jobs that we've got, I'm interested, Hayden, in, in what you would say to the question of, of what, what is a worker? Who are the people that can form unions? What, what is a worker?
8: Well, a worker is anyone that someone else is exploiting their labor for profit. So anyone, if you're producing income for someone else, you are a worker. So myself, I'm also a high school English teacher. I'm still part of the working class. I'm producing materials. I'm producing students to go out into the world and either be college or career ready. And I've compensated that. I also have a boss that dictates certain things to me. So I think that we've had a big problem in the country the past several years of trying to divide working class people into white collar and blue collar work to make someone feel superior or to give the illusion of, oh, look how good you have it. You don't need to organize amongst yourselves. You don't need a union. That's only for the other section of people. Mm. And that's completely untrue. All workers will benefit from union representation.
4: That's and you know, and that that's why I asked you because one of the things that people always say to people like Michelle or Graham or Lee is oh you coal miners they need unions right but grad students baristas retail workers no they don't need unions they're not actually even workers some people will say um and and so officially i think we've got a coal miner's wife coming on and saying that's nonsense so we're never going to hear that again is is my expectation uh. <laughs>
5: Yeah, I wanted to jump on if it's possible, Jake. I wanted to jump in on this too because I think um, there's this impression of the working class that that is like distinctly a like 20th century idea of what the working class is. When a 21st century, a 2022 working class is made up of women and queer people and non-binary people, it's overwhelmingly made up of people of color. Um, it's got sectors that are vastly distinct, even within something like the United Auto Workers. I remember two years ago when we went on strike, we had our classic, you know, UAW on strike, um, placards and tourists, NYU butts up against Washington Square Park. And so tourists will come by and be like the auto workers, you know, who are they here in solidarity with? And we, as graduate students, you know, shared that there are these white collar sectors, technical office and professional, you know, it's not just grad workers, but legal aid. Um, There's a vast growing number of um, legal aid and attorneys in the UAW, Um, and which is I would never say like I know for the folks on the line, like as I learned more about the history of the auto workers and the, the men and women who work in the plants. You know, I'm never going to be at risk of bodily harm in like losing a finger at my job. But at the same time, as Hayden has so concisely and precisely articulated, like I love that definition of like people who don't have control over their time and energy and output because they need to work for wages to live. And sometimes those wages are really high, right? But the end, I think about auto workers who are skilled technicians, underwater welders, longshoremen, and you might hear something like their salary and 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 draw a distinction, which is ultimately arbitrary because they're not property owners and they're not people who earn wealth from the labor of other people. Like, that's what makes up the working class.
4: Right. Yeah. Does... Does your money, to the extent that you have it, come from your money (laughs) or does it come from uh, your labor, the sweat of your brow or, you know, the the sweat of your brain, so to speak? Right. That's that's definitely the the important dividing line. And there was um, somebody I I think maybe Zach Patton on Twitter mentioned that, uh, you know, yeah, I'm a longshore worker. I make like $150,000 a year and uh I'm damn proud of it and I don't make too much. You make too little, right? And that's and you know, look at how much uh the longshore bosses are making, right? And that's, you know, that's definitely the uh um the important dividing line there. And so the let's let's get one more question out of the way and then we'll go to our first break. So we've got a we've got a working definition of workers um which is which is important because I I'm in a I'm in a union environment where um where i i'm I'm white collar right i I work on the computer all day. I sit in my cube and i and I work on the computer and there are, I have a lot of coworkers that they do not conceive of themselves as workers. they conceive of themselves as professionals and and all all of these you know maybe there there are interesting conversations that we can have about the divisions in the working class and what that does to people, but the important thing is is to understand that we are working class and so with that working definition what is a union then and uh for that i I'll, I'll i'm interested michelle i'll i'll let you take that away
10: so a a union is a collective of workers that are able to use that as their voice when it comes up to you know people like let's say starbucks corporate and and use that voice to gain a collective bargaining agreement, but also to hold that company accountable. So I think the biggest thing, and this goes, you know, right to the, to the, the longshoreman. when you get those things, when you get those benefits, this also relates to, to John, Johnny's uh, sort of gray area, right? Um, a lot of these companies will try to say that a, a union is a third party, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's actually a, it's a, It's a barrier between the worker and the corporate representatives or the worker and the company. But the actuality is, is it's the only thing that allows the workers to hold that company accountable. Starbucks is really big on claiming the amazing benefits that they already offer their workers, which I can tell you as one of their workers is not actually as good as they say it is. But let's just say that it was. There's still nothing preventing Starbucks from pulling those benefits away. The only thing preventing Starbucks from coming in and taking those benefits from us once they've been offered is a collective bargaining agreement, is a contract. So it's a, it's really hard for me, this whole third party narrative, and they used it quite a bit in their anti-union campaign here in Buffalo when they were trying to stop this from happening to begin with is, you know, we want to be able to have a conversation with each and every one of our partners. We don't want to have to go through a union representative. Well, first of all, that's completely unrealistic that you're ever going to have a conversation with every 400, you know, 400,000 of us. Um, The better thing for us is to be able to have a union collectively made up of your workers that can have these conversations and then come to you you know, with maybe one rep or two reps, but representative of the 400,000 people standing behind us and be able to say, this is what we need. This is what we need on the floors of these stores. Nobody knows what we need better to run these stores than the people actually running them. Um, And when we sign that agreement with these benefits that you offer us, we want to make sure you can't come and take them away. I personally, in the 12 years I've been with the company, I know some of the benefits we had when I started in 2010, and I could make a nice little list of the ones that have already been just taken away from us unilaterally without any conversation. Hmm. And so a union allows us to have that voice and to hold the company accountable.
4: And, and there's, there are several things that, that that are important and, and that I want to pull out there, and and, and one of those is, is that you know it, you said that it's a collective of workers coming together for you know a better workplace, better working conditions, and 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 stuff like this, and and that is it, that is a definition that's not dependent on the government. That's a definition that's not dependent on uh, the boss recognizing that you're a union, you know, if you come together, you say you're a union, then, you know, then by golly, you're a union, right? And, and, and it doesn't matter what anybody else says. And that's an important thing to, to understand. And, and, you know, we should, I, I think, I think we should. And I think most of us, you know, we're all in unions that that more or less agree with this. We should make use of, of the state power through the National Labor Relations Board and, and the National um, Labor Relations Act where we can and where it makes sense. But um, if all of that falls away tomorrow, and that's not the case. And we're in a landscape without legal protection for unions. Workers had those before those legal, legal protections. Workers had unions when it was expressly illegal, right? And so it's important to understand that, you know, whether or not you have a union election, if you're coming together with people on your job and advocating for yourselves, uh, then, then that's, that's the working definition of a union. That's the thing that's, that's important there. Um, Graham, did you, did you have anything that you wanted to add to that?
9: Yes, I did. Um, you kind of touched on it, but, um, in, in our organizing at REI, um, a lot of people, you know, hadn't either been in a union or didn't know what a union was. We have a lot of people who are either in college or recently graduated, um, or have been in those more like quote unquote professional white collar jobs who are sort of in a second career, or this is their like fun retail job, um, who don't really, like, didn't really know what a union was. Um, And so when explaining it to people, the, the one point that we as organizers try to make is that, you know, no matter what union you're affiliated with, whether you affiliate at all, ultimately, the union is us. You know, we are the ones who are making the decisions. We are the ones who are deciding, you know, when to use our power, how to use our power as workers. Um, So, yeah, that that is just kind of the the fine point that I wanted to put on that is that, um, you know, if you call yourself a union, you are a union because it is made up of you and however many coworkers you have. Um, And the trick is just becoming organized and knowing how to wield the power of your collective voice.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. Johnny, was there anything that you wanted to, uh, that you wanted to pull out of that uh, before we move on?
6: Yes, thank you. Um, everyone said it um so perfectly that you are the union once you start talking to your coworkers and you all decide that hey we need to come together to make changes in your in the workplace that is the day that your union has started and it doesn't need to be a large number it could be two of you as soon as you say hey let's do something about this your union has been formed and that's it and so with um everyone has talked about third partying the union that is um well i'm sure we'll get to this later big uh union busting tactic knowing that you are a union as soon as you start talking about making change that deads that right there so yeah just to echo what everyone said you are the union as soon as you start talking about it
4: absolutely absolutely uh so you know, I think we've got a good working def- definition of what workers are, what unions are. We're going to go to a break really quick. And on the other side, we're going to be talking about, uh, we- we've talked about some of this already, but but why are unions good? Why would workers want to organize unions? What are some of the benefits that people can expect to get from unionization? But first, we are going to go to a break. If you want to get your questions in, if you have a question that you want to make sure the panel addresses, you can send us a text message, eight four four eight nine nine That 844 844-899-8857. We will be right back.
3: Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW
1: 558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice.
11: Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org.
3: Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifbte.org.
11: The attorneys at Maples, Tucker and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms.
0: Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136 out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org.
4: Come build a better future with us today and join IUPACT.
7: If you guys think that you're
6: able to come, and let me you know, old I'll definitely tell give y'all the.
4: folks that's it and i just realized that that my mics have been muted so apologies for that people on the radio and online but uh but i got it fixed soon enough so um and and that's what i was saying uh, uh that i'm running the i'm running the boards here in uh spice radio studios because adam has covid so he is at home um but he's feeling well enough he's on the mend He's feeling well enough to jump on the Zoom, so we appreciate his time today, and I appreciate everybody listening. So, uh, folks, we are not going to be—I I was thinking that maybe we would be taking some calls, but but I think I've just got too many moving pieces right now to take calls, and so instead, what we're going to do is we're just going to push text messages. If you've got a, if you've got a question for the panel. Send us a text message eight four four eight nine nine TVLR eight four four eight nine nine TVLR. And like I said, folks, uh, if you've got a question about unions, this is the panel that's going to be able to answer it. We've got a flight attendant, we've got a teacher, a coal miner's wife, retail worker, barista, a grad student worker. So, folks, we've got the uh, a huge swath of the working class represented here today, um, and we appreciate everybody's time. We have answered the questions already what is a worker and what is a union if you've missed part of the show and you want to go back and get the answers to those questions then you can find us on youtube and facebook and watch the stream there of course like always we will be clipping the show and you'll be able to find um find everything there so um so yeah make sure that you uh make sure that you do that and we will go back to our panel now i'm going to get our uh, get our frames back in place, but it, it's mostly looking fine. And we will go to the next question, which is, why are unions good? Why are unions good? We know what a worker is. We know what a union is. We've talked a little bit about it, but why are they good? And I'm going to kick it back to Lee to answer this question, because I think that she'll, she'll have a good answer for us in general, but also she has a, a really good a uh, personal story that that we've talked about on the show already um but but yeah so lead what why are why are unions good why should people why should why should one do a union
5: i've been asked a lot by my family so i'm based in new york city right now but i grew up in rural south texas um and a lot of my family just by virtue of like the culture and historic attitudes towards unions have been pretty anti-union. And when I went off to college and learned more, it was a decision that I made, but this is a conversation I have at home all the time with my aunts, uncles, cousins of like, let me break it down of like what this union does for me. Um, So the reason I think unions are a good thing, there's like the theory ish stuff of like the thing i believe in my life soul and my values and then there's like the practical stuff that happens the thing i believe in my soul and my values and is like could be called like theory is that like i really believe that unions as an institution are this other thing besides like government besides the institution of the family besides the institution of education that does good things and is able to take collective action around something that everybody has to do every day, which is work in order to live. And so what unions do is like bring together people and influence the way that society and politics happens. Like who gets what, when, where, and how, and under what conditions, like that's what a union does. And like that is why I think that like in theory, they're a good thing. Um, And in practice, they also just do the work that a lot of other institutions believe they do or say they do that don't in fact do them or do them in ways that don't actually benefit workers. So like uh, universities are a really strong example of this because they often use the metaphor of a family and they also use the metaphor of like they are um, just like places where you get an education. When the one of the largest landowners in the borough of Manhattan is Columbia University and New York University. Like they are financial institutions. In addition, they are, we have this running joke that New York University is a real estate company that also gives degrees. And it's like kind of a reality because they've eaten up so much property and played a significant part in gentrification of New York City. And so what a union does is kind of bring that to the fore and say, you're not our family. You're not like this beneficial force that, you know, actually, you are a disciplinarian. Actually, what you do is withdraw benefits is retaliation. And that is what a union does is pushes up against that and uses the power of the collective to fight back against it. Like I, in a really practical way, like one of the things that so visualizes what a union does and why it's good is this like kind of cartoon and it's like kind of childish, but you all we've all seen the cartoon of like one big fish and then like Mm. a gazillion little fish and the little fish around it can be eaten up by the big fish, but when they make the big fish together, are bigger than the big fish like i believe that cartoon in my soul um and it encapsulates like these like bigger ideas and practices that i've been talking about in a really concise way of like together we're so much more
4: absolutely absolutely if there's a. I don't know of a political cartoon that is more, that is more true in more ways than the big fish cartoon. (laughs) That's, that, that, that's definitely a really good one. And, you know, just, just for the general thing of, of that's like mechanically how unions get the good things that they get. And so what, what are some of the things that y'all were able to win? What, how has the union been good for you personally?
7: Yeah, so
5: um uh, the three biggest things that I think come up for me are wages, healthcare, and um what would be called like social issues or like what we call in UAWD bargaining for the common good, um which is not just bargaining for yourself but bargaining for everybody. And so in terms of wages, when the uh when The Graduate Student Organizing Committee started in 2015, their hourly wage was $15 an hour. And at the time that was higher than the average minimum wage in New York City, but we at GSOC were the first private union, first private union to organize, organize at a, words are hard, first union to organize at a private university after a set of NLRB decisions. What that meant is that we knew that our wages set the floor. And so every contract after us, we are constantly pushing it up because we, you know, NYU will like to say like, "Oh, it's just us here, like this is just our contract," but we know that Harvard is going to say, "Well, at NYU, they make this." Or uptown at Columbia, they'll say, "At NYU, they make this." Um and so that's a really important bargaining chip. And so we've gone from $15 an hour in 2015 to $30 an hour by 2026. That's huge. Um, in terms of healthcare, most of our unit is actually master students, so they're paying like $60,000 a year to get a degree, and then they're required to have health insurance on top of that. A lot of people don't know that graduate students are not children. You know, they're full grown adults. Often they don't qualify for their parents' health insurance. And so when you're in our unit, you get a 95% reimbursement on the health care premium, which is around $3,500. Lastly, for bargaining for the common good, um, we made NYU be a sanctuary campus and agree that cops on campus pose a health and safety risk to everyone on campus, especially workers. Um, And this was huge for us. It's saying that. You know, ice can't come on campus. Cops can't come on campus. Like you're a private institution, you can make that decision, and you have not. Well, we're not going to work for you until you do too. And that was a huge win in our last contract, and something that I believe really deeply in.
4: Yeah, that is that that's great news. Being able to protect uh, protect your members and, and students on campus it's very important. Um, Johnny, did you want to add anything to that? What what would you say? What would you say if somebody asked you? Why are are unions good?
6: Unions are good uh, for the reasons that um, Elise stated. And as well, um, we've been talking about this um, for a while now. Upper management, CEOs, uh, shareholders, they have no clue what's going on (laughs) in the day-to-day in the workplace. If you ask them to come in to work and to fill in, um, they would probably do a very bad job. and probably make it worse so in that sense you need the workers the people who are there with the day-to-day um and doing all the hard work they need to have a voice in the workplace and how mm-hmm. it functions what the company looks like because we know more than anyone else we know so having a union and us being a part of that is giving us that voice to say hey this is not okay. You're doing this. This does not work for the workplace. It doesn't work for the customer. It doesn't work for this. We're on the front lines and you have that backing, that power, um, that voice to make those changes and to get them to listen to you without that. Um, they could take, take suggestions like my company, we, you know, are non-union, uh, flight attendants have a very unique, uh, Job And as you all have seen uh, throughout the pandemic that we face some interesting uh, working conditions. We faced a lot of workplace violence. Um, And if you've been flying lately, there have been long delays or cancellations uh, that do affect you uh, directly. And flight attendants were saying, hey, these conditions are not okay for the passengers, are not okay for us um, as well, but without the power of a union and a contract backing us. um, It's just a suggestion to make those changes Mm -hmm. to benefit everyone. And so that's what's really important about a union, having one, why we need one, and um, what it does. And so, yeah, our, um, sorry, AFA has won some um, big improvements for the airline industry, like no knives on the airplanes. Uh, That was AFA, no phones, uh, so people could listen and hear instructions. And so those things are important. And so without um, them fighting for us, we've never gotten stuff like that in the workplace.
4: Yes. And and Jeb asked, uh, sent us a text message, um, saw where some Delta pilots had pickets up yesterday. Are they union? And if so, do they support the attendance organizing? That's an, an interest. Are, are the Delta pilots associated with the ALPA?
6: Yes. Delta pilots are union. Um, the only... Employees at our union at Delta are our pilots and our dispatch. We are 20% Hmm. a union, which is unheard of. All the airlines, other airlines are like 80, 90%. And so our Delta pilots are definitely supporting our campaign for the first time. Um, And we're also supporting their contract negotiations. And so this is what uh, solidarity and unionizing, this is what this looks like in real time, workers coming together, even from different departments and saying, hey, we're gonna support each other against this uh, larger management entity that's both trying to work us to death. They used to pit the pilots and flight attendants against one another. Like, oh, you're gonna take a piece of their pie if you unionize. And so now we started talking to each other and saying, hey, we're both on the same side here. There's enough pie for everyone, our CEOs and shareholders are getting all of it, <laughs> and right. we're getting the crumbs. Let's fight together and to make sure that we get our fair share and now that we're doing that, um, we're usually on the um, picket lines with them, and so it's been great having that support and solidarity
4: absolutely and and so the um so now we're we're working through this. We know what a worker is, we know what a union is. we know why they're good. okay. You've let's say you've convinced me. I'm a listener. I'm convinced. This sounds this sounds dope as hell. I want to do one of these things. How do I do that? I'll I'll uh, kick it over to you, Graham. You you've got some you've got some firsthand experience. How does one do a union?
9: Yes. So the first step in doing a union um, is first to form an organizing committee. So a group of trusted coworkers that you know, you can rely on, and you know, you can trust, um, to do a lot of the legwork also to keep it secret at the beginning, because the element of surprise, uh, is a, a source of power, um, and was a huge source of power for us at REI. Um, but yeah, the, the very first step is to find, you know, I, my, my coworkers, um, I was actually approached by a coworker, um, and they were like, Hey, uh, come to the park. I want to talk to you about something. <laughs> um, and so, from that, you know, that, that sort of created our, our very first organizing committee meeting. Um, and from that point on, you know, we've stuck by each other throughout this whole experience um, from having one on one conversations with our coworkers after that. Um, sorry, there's a cat. Um, and getting authorization cards signed, having our election, going through the experience of union busting. Um, so yeah, step one, find some trusted coworkers and, uh, meet with them often, uh, to sort of map your workplace and get the strategy, the groundwork down.
4: What about, uh, Michelle, do you have anything that you'd add to that? Uh, of course. And of course, how do you form a union, right? We're answering this in five minutes. There's, We're not going to be able, you know, there, there are resources, you know, th- these take, the organizing campaigns take years, right? But, but you know, we're distilling this, right? So, Michelle, what would you add to that?
10: I'm going to echo everything that Graham said, first of all. The element of surprise is very important. Um, finding the co-workers you can trust initially to keep that a secret, but to also help garner additional support. Um, that conversation I referenced in my intro, I got a text message from that coworker asking me if I wanted to get a cup of coffee after one of our shifts later that week, which I will let you know, I mean, we literally serve coffee all day. So it was it was an interesting text message. And I was like, uh, yeah, sh- sure. I mean, we'll probably have already had 16 cups by that point. But yeah, absolutely. Um, but what she also did was I was one of the last people in Buffalo that was reached out to in in our market in terms of forming that organizing committee, and I don't fault her for any of that. Um, at that point, I'd been with the company eleven years, and so that kind of tenure usually would breed a certain level of loyalty, or at least a perceived level of loyalty. Um, and so she, there was some apprehension at, to talking to someone who'd been with the company that long. Like I would, you know, the potential of me. Feeling the opposite and running to management was pretty high. And I'm grateful mm. every day that she still chose to have that conversation. But that's the strategy that you need to employ when you're, when you're at those very beginning stages. You have to sort of map that out. Um, we also, our organizing committee was not just store-specific, even though we were filing for individual stores. Um, there's 20 stores in the Buffalo market, 20 Starbucks locations. And I believe every single one of them had at least one representative. Um, on our organizing committee. So it was really important from the beginning for us to map out the city, knowing that the Mm. company would inevitably come, come at us and probably try to divide and conquer in terms of pitting one store against the other. So we were able to sort of have eyes and ears on the ground in every one of those locations. And that was very essential to, like I said, Elmwood happened to be the first location to win, but there were 19 other stores in our market standing behind that store to get us over Mm -hmm. that finish line. Um, The next step, I think, is making sure that you're there to take care of each other, because in almost every case, uh, the anti-union campaign is going to come at you and it's going to come at you strong. And it's very scary and it's very intimidating. and And a lot of this new labor movement is on the younger side. You know, I'm not, I'm not including myself in that. I'm actually probably on the older side of it, but a lot of my coworkers, two of the coworkers at the Elmwood location were high school seniors and they're being brought into, you know, one-on-ones or two-on-ones or three-on-ones with not only, you know, upper management and, and corporate, but, you know, the president of Starbucks North America, who's bringing in $4 million a year, that's an intimidating situation. So making sure that you're continually checking in on your coworkers after those instances, seeing what kind of support they need, um, showing them what you're able to give them, you know, as one of their fellow workers, as the union that that corporate is just not concerned about. They don't care about the mental health of what they're putting these young workers through. They don't care about the physical toll, you know, that that is having on them. And so making sure that your coworkers feel as supported as possible. Um, And if there are coworkers who who don't feel like they have the strength to use their voices in those anti-union meetings. You know, I I think back to the, some of those instances and watching coworkers be brought to tears because of just the stress of being put in that situation to begin with,
7: mm.
10: having the voice to speak, to stand up for them and say, this is wrong. What you're doing to this person is wrong. It shouldn't be happening. And, you know, I'm gonna stand with them and I'll use my voice if they don't feel like they can use theirs. Um, that was what allowed us to get that first store, and that's what's allowing all of these stores since then. I, I'm watching the solidarity of baristas across the country stand up for one another um, and call corporate out on their their absolutely awful behavior. And um, when one person stands up, it gives the next person the strength to stand up, and that's what's happening right now.
4: Absolutely. I think that's some good good answers to the question of how to form a union. Um, we are going to take our final break and then we will be right back. We're going to be talking about what is going what can you expect when you begin to form a union. So now we've got you convinced, we've got you some of the first steps. We want to try to make sure that you understand what's going to happen next. We're going to be talking about union busting and some anti-union talking points on the other side of the show. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. <music>
11: Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage
1: of workers, but that's not the case with IBW 558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW 558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW 558.org.
4: North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this
3: program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial, working-class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern worker movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you, too, can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity to y'all. E. O-R-G. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. You know, have semi to by a conversation. There was another very sexist um, slogan: uh,
7: shoes.
4: On you. Alabama's only Union Talk radio show. This is The Valley Laker Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. We are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio. Folks, we have got a great panel with us today. That panel is, uh, we're talking just about... Unions 101, folks. Just the super, super, super basic stuff. What is a union? What is a worker? How do I form one? And now we are going to be talking about What you can expect when you begin a union campaign. What are some of the anti-union talking points? What is the boss going to do to you? We're going to be talking about that with Johnny Lane, a Delta flight attendant organizing with the AFA, Graham Gale, a retail worker for REI in New York, Lee Diaz, a graduate student, graduate student worker at New York University, Michelle Eisen, a barista It at uh, Starbucks and Hayden Wright, an English teacher and coal miner's wife, president of the Women's Auxiliary of the UMWa. I really appreciate everybody taking the time this morning to talk to us, to be on the radio. Um, It's 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 good stuff. It's good stuff. I think uh, I think that it's been a really good show uh, so far. And let me unmute myself. And we will go right into, we'll go right into some of the, um, well, first let's, let's, let's explain for people what is union busting. And I'll go to, uh, Johnny Lane to
2: kick us off with that. There we go.
6: Um, yes, because uh, I feel like my company has, um, perfected union busting in the, uh, 30 plus years they've been trying to keep out, um, a union at Delta. Um, union busting is exactly what it sounds like. It's the company trying to come in and dis- dissuade, uh, workers from forming a union. And that's by any means necessary. Um, some of us have discussed, um, captive audience meetings where their, uh, management comes in. You could be, um, there with food, drinks, whatever your other coworkers and someone just starts talking about why it's bad to have a union, why it's scary. Some of the language that you may hear is uh, no more open door policy. You won't be able to speak with management directly anymore. Mm. We're a family. Why would you want a third party to come in and disrupt the family atmosphere? One of my favorites that my company uses is preserving our culture. Mm -hmm. which is, um, you know, being from the South, those types of terms are rooted in white supremacy. So when you hear things like that, it can get kind of scary and your uh, radar should go up. But those are just a few things that you may see at the beginning uh, for them to kind of put in your mind that, oh, maybe having a union is bad. Uh, Food is often something that they'll use like, oh, we're a family, we're providing you with pizza or ice cream so it could seem like it's very harmless but a lot of these tactics are tactics are very insidious and that's just some of the beginning of union busting that you may um, see when you start your campaign. Delta is known for some of their very public ads that um, have gotten uh, around in recent years. One of the more famous ones is um, instead of paying $50 for dues you could a 700 dollars PlayStation. The dues that she would spend in a year would go to buying a PlayStation or Braves tickets. And so it was just incredibly um insulting that they would think that even like $50 mm. that people were saving up for things like that, that they could spend that instead. Somehow that would have um a PlayStation or a Braves tickets would have more value than uh collective bargaining power right. in the workplace. <laughs> but unfortunately some people do fall for it.
4: Yeah, one of the things that they said is is that you know you, you, dues might be five hundred dollars a year or something, and that you could buy a PlayStation with that instead. And I think it, it was either the AFL CIO or the AFA that that tweeted. Um, also, you could construct a guillotine, and then they deleted that post because <laughs> I don't know somebody <laughs> yeah. got somebody got a little too yeah. a, a little too scared. And I <laughs> that is a critique that I have of the social media policy of some unions. They're not radical enough. They're not, they do not lean into the edgelord stuff enough. I think more guillotine imagery. That's, that's my take. Um, But, but, you know, and, and you, uh, we've talked about, we've mentioned this uh, earlier in the show, uh, the captive audience meetings. And Michelle, you touched on that uh, really, uh, and, and it's really intimidating. What are some of the things that, that they'll tell you in these captive audience meetings that you're forced to go to, or you could potentially lose your job.
10: So the first thing I'm gonna say is that the company will never refer to them as a captive audience meeting. Um, Mm. They like to call them things like listening sessions, Mm. um, which is what Starbucks corporate like to call them. They'll also like to tell you that they're not mandatory. However, you're paid to attend. Um and so if you're an hourly worker working paycheck to paycheck and the option is go to this 1-hour meeting because the store is in most cases the stores are shut down for these meetings and so you are you're told hey your shift for that day is canceled we're shutting the store down because we're having these listening sessions um so you can come to this 1-hour listening session and be paid for your entire shift that you were scheduled for but if you don't come to this 1-hour listening session then you're not paid for that shift so you can say they're not mandatory, but the reality of the situation is you're dealing with hourly workers who need this income, and so their only option is to attend that listening session or that captive audience meeting. Then um, they start off very innocuous. The The um, company narrative here in Buffalo was that this was coincidental, that all of these management and corporate were in Buffalo at, at, you know, just mere days after the filing of the first few union petitions. Um, they had heard that there were problems in our market. And um, they were here to address them and to fix them. And they didn't know why things were so bad here, but none of the problems happening at the Starbucks stores in Buffalo were happening anywhere else in the country. So something had just happened. Something had gone wrong here in Buffalo and they were here to address that and to fix it because this wasn't the true Starbucks experience. We weren't getting the true Starbucks experience and they wanted to fix that for us. So that's how those meetings start out. And they'll, they'll get through, you know, 50 minutes of talking at you and then the last 10 they'll reserve for, well, we also wanted to address this union campaign. And they'll slowly work that into the conversation um, about how they don't feel like it's necessary. It will destroy the partner to partner relationship that we've you know, spent 50 years cultivating in the company. Um, and they're going to fix all of the issues, which, by the way, the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, says they can't. Do, when a union campaign starts, one of the things that has to be maintained is what is called laboratory conditions, which means they can't come into a shop that's trying to organize and they can't make things better and they can't make things worse. So coming in at the start of a union campaign and saying we're going to fix all of the problems is actually not legal. Um, but, you know, they they frame that as a way. But we're here to take care of everything so that you can mm-hmm. we can just let this pesky union campaign go. You don't have to worry about it. And those meetings get more and more aggressive the closer you get to the vote, um, to the point where the last couple I actually wasn't permitted to attend the last listening session for for Elmwood because um at that point they were dividing the store up into you know very vocal union supporters and not-so vocal union supporters. And the meeting that I wanted to attend had some not-so vocal union supporters. And when I showed up, they said, Oh, we're not, you're not able to stay for this meeting. Mm-hmm. So they get more and more aggressive and they they basically say. Hey, we don't want a union. We want everybody to vote because not voting to them is the equivalent of a yes vote in a lot of cases um and we want you all to vote no I mean it's that blatant. it's mm-hmm. not there's no it's not even thinly vowed at this point right um and it can get really scary and really intimidating, and you have to you know sort of be prepared to stand up and and speak for your coworkers and call them out on their incredible lies and, and misinformation. Um, it was one of the scariest things I've ever done. Be You know, s- sitting there, their third party narrative is, is also very, very, very strong to echo what Johnny said. Um, they like to say, you know, we're just giving you the facts. And if you want to get facts on the union, then you should, co- you, you know, you should contact one of your union reps. Mm. And that very first meeting, I raised my hand and I said, well, I'm one of the organizing members and I would be happy to answer any questions anybody might have. Um, and my heart was pounding out of my chest. I mean, there wasn't a single meeting I sat at where my Apple Watch didn't give me a high heart rate notification. And we need to take that into account when workers are right. trying to organize the mental and physical toll that they're put through simply for trying to exercise what is their right under the law in this country.
4: And all of this by people that that hold their paycheck in, in their hands, right? I mean, this is a really, really big deal uh, for folks. Um, and, and one of the things that they'll tell people at retail stores and at restaurants like like Starbucks and like REI is they're going to close your store if you organize. Graham, can you, how did you address that when you, because when, I'm, I'm assuming that that came up or there were implications in your campaign in New York. How did y'all speak to that concern?
9: So we actually didn't hear anything about like, closing the store from corporate in New York. Um, the Soho location, it's a flag, flagship store. Um, it's in the pub building. So it's like a very historic location. It's it's almost like one of the prize gems of REI's, um, of yeah, the, the national company. Um, so there wasn't really anything about like store closure. Um, but I can definitely agree with Michelle about like the experience of sitting through these captive audience meetings and, you know, being, I think there was like, for some people, the fear of like being vocal and like, you might not lose your store location, but people being scared of like being fired for being vocal. Um, but the more vocal you are, the more you are protected by the National Labor Relations Act. And that's something that we really, really tried to hit home um, during these captive audience meetings. And it actually resulted in there not, there was not a single captive audience meeting that REI ran where there was not just belligerent pushback from you know, several members of staff. Um, so, yeah, we didn't really run into the store closure thing, um, but people were afraid of being fired for their beliefs, you know, for wanting this right of organizing at work. Um, and we made it very, very clear that this is safe. It is um, essential that we push back on management, um, and that the more vocal you are, And the more you actually take ownership of this union, um, the more protected you are against uh, any attack from management.
4: So in the last 10 minutes, you know, we, we've talked about union busting, what the boss is going to do. There are a couple of anti-union talking points that, that you're going to hear in these captive audience meetings that you might hear from people that you know in your family. Like, why are you, you know, I, I hear this about unions. Why, you know, why are you doing this when I hear this? And, and so um, I'll go to Hayden for the first one, because I think that, that she's in a really good spot to answer this question. Uh, and this is from, from a listener. Uh, Jack from New Jersey recently had a conversation with my very anti-union boss um, who was telling a story about a Potentially believable complaint about a public school teacher failing his son from an educational perspective, but drawing the absolute worst possible conclusions from the experience. While I strongly believe these situations would be less prevalent if public schools were adequately funded, teachers paid enough, etc., uh, there is a reality of, of people being failed by the system. How? What are some thoughts on how a hopefully future parent could handle that kind of situation with solidarity, Hayden?
8: Okay, so let me make sure I'm understanding the complaint there. They believe that their student was the student was failed to be properly educated by a union by by the the,
4: by the teacher and and his his anti-union boss who you know it's a boss so (laughs) but his anti-union boss is saying that oh this is an example of of unions protecting you know lazy teachers and and you know they're they're standing in the way of of progress and standing in the way of customer experience or, or the education for the students right
8: well first of all let's go ahead and make it very clear A union is not necessarily going to protect
7: a poor worker.
8: What a union does is it gives you wind garden rights. It says that you can't be brought in for discipline or fired without cause. Now, that means that you're going to have to go through the proper channels. Your boss just can't not like you or a parent can't just complain and say, well, it's the teacher's fault that my child did nothing all year. (laughs) What that does is it requires there's due process. So just like we have a system of checks and balances, or we should, even within the government, if there's channels that things go through that are fact-checked, that are supposed to be done before a decision is made. The union works not just to protect that worker, but to also protect the students, the faculty, and the climate of the school. So we're not going to base something off one complaint. You would have a due process and a representative there to actually get the facts. And give you a voice to where it's not a situation of he said, she said, and it escalates into a huge disagreement. You have someone there that's representing the best, actually, in that case, for the student and the teacher. And that would be your union representative through your Winter Garden rights.
4: Right, right. And, and um, that's. I mean, almost exactly what we said a couple of weeks ago when we got a similar question and Adam, who was a former public school teacher, former um, teachers union, ostensibly, you know, professional association here in Alabama staffer. Um, and Adam, was there anything that you wanted to make sure that we, we added to that? I, I know that you, uh, you know, you've been kind of uh, kind of quiet um, during the show. Was there anything you wanted to add to that question?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Since I I was involved in representing workers who were tenured and put up for termination. And let me just say, if management's job is to be management, if there is a worker whose conduct is so awful and egregious, they deserve to be fired. And frankly, it should be awful, egregious conduct that gets you fired and takes away your livelihood. But if you know that does happen, and if there's a worker, in this case a tenured teacher, who whose conduct is so bad, uh, but yet they can't be terminated, that sounds like a problem with management. That sounds like management is lazy or incompetent or unable to follow due process because there's not a union in this country and, and probably in the world that I'm aware of that enshrines the right to poor conduct in a contract. Right? No union says We want our employees to be able to uh, behave badly at work, to not show up on time, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But it's management's job to be management and to follow due process, to discipline workers according to policy and contract. So, you know, that's what I always told folks, you know, when when they brought those concerns to me about protecting a, a lazy or incompetent teacher the only way they're protected is if their administrator is lazier and is more lazy and more incompetent than the teacher in question. Right. Um, mm. uh, everybody is entitled to due process or should be entitled to due process. You're talking about taking away someone's livelihood, their ability to feed their family. It's not a lot to ask that they'd be able to produce some documentation.
4: Exactly. Exactly. Um, this is a question that you're gonna get that that people, especially in in service work like Starbucks, they get this question all the time, which is if you hate your job, why don't you just leave it? Why don't you just get another job, Michelle? Why don't you just get another job?
10: I mean, I think the first um, part of wrong information there is that we hate our jobs. because we don't, mm. um, you know, part of what Starbucks was really good at is creating this community and creating these environments in these stores that allow you to, to have these connections with the, your customers, with the community around you and with your fellow coworkers within your store. They actually, they, they cultivate that. They encourage you to create those. We we actually have a term in the company called a, a customer connection, you know? So we don't hate our jobs. I mean, I, before this organizing effort, I'd been with the company 11 years. If I'd hated the job, I wouldn't have been with the company for 11 years. Mm-hmm. Um, we love our shops, and we love our customers, and we love the people we work with. And when you love something, you work to make it better. You don't seek to leave it or or, or tear it down. We're simply asking for the opportunity to have a voice in those shops to be able to, you know, have a direct line to the people making the decisions, essentially, and, and allow us to have the opportunity to help with those decisions. Right now, we're at the mercy of what whoever's sitting up in some tower in Seattle and passing these, you know, procedures and protocols down to us and saying, well, now we need you to do this. Um, but there's no conversation with those hourly workers to say, is this actually going to be what's best for the store for the for the customer, for the the workers, there's no conversation. And that became more and more evident in the middle of a global pandemic. You know, when we were being asked to enact even safety precautions that just weren't sufficient. And there was no leadway whatsoever to be able to say, hey guys, this isn't working. There was no way to say this, this is what you're asking us to do. It's it's not feasible. It's not working. And so we we don't hate our jobs at oh. all. Um And I think there's also a really, there's a mentality within the service industry in general. And I think you touched on it earlier that these jobs are, are temporary or they're unskilled. Um, And so you should just be able to suck it up. You know, if you are in this situation for a, a limited period of time, you're putting yourself through college or you're, you know, in high school or, or this is temporary while you're in the middle of a career change that you should just, it's acceptable to deal with a certain level of disrespect and it's acceptable to not have safe working conditions, and it's acceptable to not have fair wages. And for one thing, that's just absolutely not the case. I don't care if you're doing this job for three months or if you're doing this job for 12 years. Those are things that, we, that should be insured to every worker. Certainly, when the umbrella of that job is a multi-billion dollar corporation right. who right. can do so much and more for their workers and would just choose to to keep the shareholders happy as opposed to ensuring that their employees who bring in those billions of dollars of profit are taken care of.
4: Exactly. Uh, Michelle, that is a great place to wrap the show up uh, for the for the main show on the radio. We appreciate your time. Uh, at least Adam and I, I, I want to, everybody here on the panel has been very generous with their time, so I want to make sure that I let them go. But uh, at least Adam and I are going to be answering a couple more questions for Unions 101 type stuff. And then we're going to be talking to Joe DeManuel Hall about how to be an effective steward. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into how, to be an effective union activist, a union steward, and stuff like this uh, with Joe DeManuel Hall in overtime from Labor Notes. But before we do that, after we get off the radio, we're going to answer a couple more Unions 101 uh, questions. Folks from the panel are more than welcome to stay on, but... Everybody's incredibly busy. We, we've already taken an hour and a half of your time, so we appreciate Michelle Eisen from Starbucks Workers United, Lee Diaz from the New York University Graduate Student Organizing Committee, Graham Gale from REI Soho Union, Hayden Wright, President of the Women's Auxiliary of the Mine Workers, and Johnny Lane from the Delta AFA. All right, folks, we are off the radio. We're off the radio now. We're online. We've gotten rid of the FCC censors. We can say whatever we want now. Hell um, yeah. <laughs> but I do appreciate, I really, I think, I love these. I, I, I love these uh, These shows. We Like I said, we do these a couple of times a year, unions one-on-one type stuff, because there's so little, you know, like like just basic, what what is a union? What does it do? And and I think it is important to to go down to that kind of remedial elementary level, right? To to get into that kind of stuff. So,
0: um, and can I just say it's uh, such an honor and a pleasure to get that kind of conversation going among some of the country's leading organizers, uh, because that's how I've told people about this episode. Like, hey, do you want to you want to hear straight from the source? Some of the right. coolest, most badass folks in the country actually doing the work. Who are making history in front of our eyes, then you know, here we are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh
4: so yeah, folks, um if y'all've y'all you all got to go, you're free to go ahead and, and go now. Um and, and we're gonna continue a little bit with Unions 101 stuff before we bring on
2: Joe. So, and I can
4: also, who, let's see, who are we, who is, who all is staying? Graham's going to stay on. Lee can stay on for another another 20, 30 minutes. Michelle can also stay on for a little bit. Johnny, do you need to go? Staying for about 20. Wow! Wow! We're keeping all of these people. Yeah. Look at that. That's crazy. What about Hayden? Hayden, do you not need, do you not need to go?
8: I've got to go because I've already been getting text messages the whole time about <laughs> things going wrong getting ready for Labor Day. I'm driving oh, no. back down the hill. <laughs>
4: oh man.
5: But thank you. Hayden, Hayden it was so you. nice to meet you. Hayden,
10: my um my family is a family of coal miners from Harlan County. It's so nice to meet you. Cool. Very cool oh, meeting nice you, Hayden.
6: And, in the West
7: meet Virginia and after yeah. we wrap, I'll make a WhatsApp group if that's okay. Not that you need to be in any yeah. more WhatsApp groups, but then we'll have each other's numbers.
2: Sounds good. Thanks, Hayden. You're
7: great. Thank
2: you. Yep.
4: All righty. So let's see. Just a cup. Just a minute. And... Uh, Jacob,
0: while you're working on that, um, I don't know. You know what final questions we wanted to try to get to uh, with our panel, uh, but I definitely, if we have the chance, I'd like to talk some more about that interpersonal uh, Mm -hmm. conflict that comes up. And uh, that was something that, you know, some folks shared with me personally that they wanted to discuss in front of the panel. And um, I definitely would like to hear from people smarter than me uh, what solutions they may have to the type of uh, interpersonal issues that come up uh, when you're organizing, whether that's, um, you know, the workplace snitch because mm-hmm. nearly every workplace has one of those um right. how, do, how do you handle that and the uh, the other big one is uh, oftentimes there's always uh one person at least who is just very um difficult uh, yeah and often brings drama with them uh often keeps drama stirred up and it's never, uh, or at least, you know, the, the type of person I'm thinking of, it's not like ideological struggle. Right, it's not right, political right, right. drama necessarily. It's more interpersonal, you know, exactly. petty kind of stuff. But that can really yeah. sap energy. Uh, those folks can be like energy vampires. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so we're going to be on that.
4: Yeah, folks are going to start dropping off here in about 15 20 minutes and Lee had a question that she wanted to get to and I went ahead just to keep the frames uh so I don't have to do so much. I went ahead and brought Joe in. Uh Joe from Labor Notes. He's going to be talking to us about stewards a little bit later. Is that fine Joe that I'm going to you're going to be audience member for a little bit? Fantastic. So Lee, you had a question that you wanted to you wanted to answer um which is something that that you said that you've got a, a, a cousin who asks you this. And and we this is another thing that we talked about with Adam because he gets a similar complaint as a stagehand. And the question was, I like unions in theory, but they're inefficient in practice. Why does it take 6 guys to do the work that one person could do? And so we're talking here about like job descriptions. Like unions are going to have job descriptions. You have to do, you know, you're you're not yeah, it's not, it's, it, it is kind of frowned upon to do work for free in a union environment, <laughs> you know, we, we call me crazy. Uh, but you know, so Lee, what talk, talk to us about that question that you got from your cousin and how, how you try to respond to him.
5: Yeah. Like I said, I'm from Texas. And even though I'm from, um, a part of Texas, that's really, um, historically involved in, um, farm labor, there was like a lot of um, migrant laborers and United Farm Workers was really big in South Texas where I grew up. At the same time, like the political conditions in South Texas have shifted such that a lot of folks who are Mexican-American have um, a really specific political agenda. So like a lot of my family is really anti-union as working class people, as electricians, as farmers um, and ranchers. And so for my cousin, like we were literally Thanksgiving and he's like, I'm a lineman when the electricity goes out, like we can't wait for one more person to, you know, go up the ladder and open the box and whatever it is. And, um, I think the way that I, this is not a question I have a fantastic answer to, but what's important about it is like learning together with someone, like I don't have all the answers and it would be ridiculous to think that any one organizer does so that's what I told it was like you know that's a really good question and I don't know what your working conditions are like like you've known me Mm. longer than I've known me and you know that I'm a nerd that I read and write for my job I'm an educator I don't know what it's like to have to restore electricity in a in a after a hurricane but at the same time like this feels like something that I've been told in my workplace which is that like this, there's a personalization or segmentation of labor. And like that just doesn't, what it actually means in practice is
7: like, it's not
5: about many different people having one small job, even though that acknowledges that work is a collective effort that takes many people. That parcelization means that that job, which is incredibly dangerous, probably needs some safeguards. Mm. So I think about like for, like I said, I haven't fully thought this through, so I don't have a catchy line phrase, but like one of the things that I've heard and listening into like the conversation around pilots, pilots need more rest between flights because they're doing this really crazy, responsible, heavy job. I don't know what it's like to be an electrician or a lineman, but something tells me that if you're up in the air being fatigued,
0: mm-hmm. being,
5: um, having to work really long hours under stressful conditions, having more people rather than less people, it isn't actually about what you as a person can and can't do or more or less equipped to do, but keeping everybody safe. And so that's what my gut said. That's what my intuition said. But oftentimes when you think about like, it takes, You know, it's always somebody else's job or it takes a bunch of people to to do the work. It's like, actually, that's probably because for the first time you're working in a safe workplace and everybody there is as rested as they needed and has the ability to like combat fatigue or combat like the challenges that they otherwise face on the job.
4: Right. Right. Does anybody else have and, you know, Adam, I'll, I'll throw it to you if, if none of the other three have have anything else to say, um, because I, I know I that Graham
0: but... had some uh, context from the REI position. OK.
9: Yeah. So um, this is actually so relevant to um, what's going on at REI right now in our contract negotiations, um, because. We have a lot of different um, departments that deal with like extremely oversized or heavy equipment like kayaks, canoes, bikes. Um, I myself work in the bike shop department. Um, So my job is like actually pretty dangerous. (laughs) Um, So just having like a a specific example that's relevant to um, just kind of having multiple people to help with one job. Um, we have to hang bikes on the ceiling, um, in our action sports department. So basically where we sell all of the skis, the bikes, um, all the, all the stuff that you need to like get outdoors, um, and have a fun time. Um, so we hang, we hang bikes on the ceiling, um, and there is a complete lack of training Typically, there are only two people who actually do this job. So something that we're asking for in our contract is specific training on how to safely put a bike onto the ceiling and have a minimum number of people involved in that task. Um, So just to kind of like, I guess, answer this question, like there is the, the concern about safety So of course, having more people involved in a task makes it so that, for example, with the bike, one person is hanging the bike, one person is spotting, and another person is like directing the flow of customers. Um, And then also having the specific training around that task, you know, one person is trained to hang, one person is trained to spot, and one person is trained to direct the flow of traffic um so that everybody is utilizing their own expertise to its fullest potential um so just kind of a cool relevant example um from from REI
4: and i think the the most important th- you know there there there's a lot of things that that we could we could mention and that we could add and and i started off saying that It's not it's kind of frowned upon to do work for free. And that's what you're doing if you do work outside of your job description. Right. Is you are doing work for free for the company. And there's no reason to do that because they would not do the same thing for you. Um, But the most the most important thing is what Graham mentioned is that they are putting this in their contract. They are talking about this language. They are talking through this. Who is they? The workers there. So if there is genuinely, yeah, right. If there is genuinely just an absurd work rule, Guess who can change that? You can, as the worker who bargains your next contract. You can get on the negotiating committee. You can be on the bargaining committee, run on eliminating this dumb work rule and get on the bargaining committee. Cause there's, right? I'm sure, I'm sure there's 300 million people in the United States. There are a hundred million plus workers. I'm sure, you know, probably not a whole lot, probably less than people think, but I'm sure there are some that are silly. We'll get rid of it. If it's your contract, if it's your workplace, Get rid of it. That's up to you.
0: Um, yeah, that was, that was the one point I was just going to throw in there is that, you know, who's making the decision uh, when I'm hanging up lights for a concert and we're supposed to do two two people per light. If I choose myself to just do it by myself, mm. you know, that's on me. That's my choice. Maybe they are lighter than normal and, and I can handle that. Uh, but that's different than when. You know, if someone in management were to come to us and say, hey, actually, uh, forget about the two people per light rule, you're all just going to do it by yourself. You know, that's that's different. And I think uh, whenever it comes to worker safety versus profitability or, you know, perceived efficiency or or saving time, any of that, we should always err on the side of worker safety. And, And I don't think unions should ever apologize for that. Yeah. I can
10: add a little bit too, if that's okay. Um, a lot of it's gonna piggyback on what Graham said, and a little bit on what Adam said. But some of the things we're talking about um, in our proposals for the for the first Starbucks contract is um, a minimum staffing requirement, which mm-hmm. really doesn't necessarily exist. Maybe in theory it exists, but if you're you know in the middle of a shift and you have two people call off there's nothing right now that uh, that protects us in terms of where does that workload then get dispersed? It gets dispersed to the five people who are on that shift. And what happens to the profits that are coming in? Because the company is now not paying two employees, but the same amount of profits in theory are coming in. So where is that going? That's going right back to the company. So one of the things, aside from a minimum staffing requirement, would be the ability to, if we're short staffed, to shut down some channels. I don't know, I'm certain most people are not super familiar with how a Starbucks is run, but there's multiple channels for customers. There's an you know, there's the in-house channel, in a lot of cases there's a drive-through channel. Now there's a mobile order and pay channel, in a lot of cases, there's a there's a delivery channel. All of those require people to run them. And you have a couple of people call off and you're still expected to run all of those channels. So we want A couple of things, the ability to be able to shut down certain channels if we're short staffed, to try to make sure that we're not doubling the workload of the people who who were able to be there. And secondly, as compensation for working short staffed. It's inevitable that our workload is going to, at minimum, probably double if people are unable to be there. And that shouldn't be automatic additional profit for the company. That should somehow be dispersed so that there's that compensation for working harder than you would normally be working, is is sent back to those people who are working that shift. We're not saying shut the shop down, which is, of course, their narrative. We're not saying mm-hmm. if somebody is sick that all of a sudden the, the, the entire business has to come to a screeching halt. We're just saying let's figure out a way together to manage that so that we're not being overworked and the, the customers are not suffering, you know, and it's it's crazy the way that these companies look at what we're saying is the most fair and equitable way to handle a situation. And they're going, well, you just don't want us to make any money. You just want to shut everything down. No, absolutely nobody said that. Who wins if we shut the business down? We certainly don't win. So um those are some of the proposals we are working on and hopefully asking for and look we'll at in that first collective bargaining agreement.
4: Fantastic. And and so then let's spend the last few minutes on on this um, you know, uh uh Adams question about how do you deal because look, right, we're all we're worker advocates, we want the best work workers deserve more, right? This is this is kind of our shtick. Uh but workers are people, and sometimes people are crazy. Like they are weird. sometimes people can be weird, right? Sometimes they can stir up stuff. That really make you uh, uh, that, that can re- really cro- cause issues in a campaign, uh, you know, a toxic coworker who is drama all the time, keeps petty interpersonal stuff, stirred up a snitch. Um, what about when the toxic person is a steward or a building rep or an officer or uh, you know somebody on the organizing committee? How do we deal with? Conflict between workers between union members um and Johnny, you've been quiet for a little bit, so i'll I'll throw it to you for a first
6: uh, thank you um yeah, I feel like uh it could definitely speak to this because in our ongoing union campaign, we have a very very vocal. Um, anti-union faction within our company and dealing with them has been um, just an exercise and patience and understanding because you don't want to alienate your coworkers. Um, These are people that I still have to work with. Some of them I've Mm. even called my friends at some point. And so You know, always trying to um, in the back of my mind, I always say I'm trying to remember that, you know, I work with them. I respect them or even, you know, I may love some of my friends um, and that once we move past this, we'll still have to work together. So that's like my uh, broad answer. But directly. And I'm just going to be honest with you. Sometimes you're just going to have to let some people go and move on. You might not be able to convince people that they need a union or their views just may be so opposed or bizarre that you're like, this is not going anywhere. I've had to let some conversations um, go. They've gone into QAnon conspiracy theory (laughs) territory. And I'm just like, you know what? No, I am out of my depth (laughs) a little bit or I just strongly disagree and I don't have the mental or emotional bandwidth to carry this conversation on. And you know what? That's that's okay. And I think you do yourself better service as an organizer when you say this conversation is isn't going to work. I may not be able to save this person. I can save the next person. And then another tactic that I use, and that we use um, every organizer has a Slack or Discord or something like that, WhatsApp. Um, I suggest someone else talk to them. Someone mm-hmm. at the company speaks their language. And at in a work group that has over 20 something thousand flight attendants. And it, we're not all gonna be the same. I'm very fortunate that I have a friend circle that um somewhat believes the similar things that I do, but not all of my coworkers do. So in that case, I'm gonna say, Hey, you know what? You seem to be on the same wavelength as this person. Maybe you should try to talk to them. Maybe you can mm. speak their language and see um if you all can come to some type of meeting ground or terms, or just, you know, progress them from wherever they are in um, whatever organizing conversation that you're having. But we have our snitches, we have people who are looking at our Facebook accounts to see what we said in 2015, and who are reporting us to the company. And I just have to think that, you know, I'm trying to save them from themselves. You know, yeah, I know it's a hero thing or whatever, and that may not be the best way to come at it. But if they're doing that, that means if there's something going on with them personally in their lives. It's not my job to dig it out or, you know, find out what it is. I just have to let them do that and continue on with my organizing and forming a union, because that is the goal. And we're just going to save them um, from whatever negative negativity and nonsense that they're doing and not let it... Um, derail the campaign, but you know what? Uh, just you can't take on every single person you
7: just yeah. can't it's impossible exactly, yeah,
2: does anybody else have anything they want to add to that
7: yeah I wanted to talk about so so far, we've been talking
5: about um what it means to speak to people who are like at the level of um yes, union, no union, or like, I'm not in a union, I am in a union. Um, One thing that's come up over the past few years, and especially as I've become more involved, not just in my units politics, but in UAW national and regional politics, um, is also interpersonal conflict and interpersonal forms of harm that happen amongst union members, um, and how you manage that in maintaining your professional relationship that you have with these like colleagues and like union Mm -hmm. colleagues, like not even just work colleagues, but union colleagues, um, and confronting it and addressing it while also maintaining that relationship. Um, specifically, I think what comes to mind for me, um, is sexism and racism as they are present. If they're present in society, that means they're present in unions. If, and so, um, Within the UAW, um, like, just a month ago at our conference um, at the UAW Constitutional Convention, I was mistaken for a different person who's of a different ethnic brown background, but who is also like an outspoken woman of color. Um, and this has happened Even before the conference, after the conference, like we just get mixed up all the time. And even though this is a microaggression, um, it's actually been a useful teaching experience to talk to my UAW brother siblings, brothers and sisters, which is like a language that's really common in the UAW, um, and talk about these subtle things that like it's actually really important that you don't mix me up with my friend. I love her. I'm honored to be mistaken for her. She's beautiful. But what I also hear when you say that is that you're not paying attention to like our each of our individuality or like, you know, something else that came up is realizing that um, some of the auto workers um, who are men would go around and shake the hands of everybody there. And then would assume that the women present were partners or wives and Mm. not um, in the UAW themselves, or like, just not like literally not even speak to them. Right. Um, And as the UAW grows, as it moves into other sectors and also as capitalism changes, as it has historically and has, it will continue to do, like women and non-binary people have a role in the labor movement and you just like can never make an assumption about why someone is there. And so those have been difficult conversations. Um, There's also like conversations about reform and what the role of a union is like is it a service union is it a business union this is like union 201 so we could get into that at another level at another time but to have that conversation about like conflict within a union and like you might disagree with someone about this political strategy but you can't use interpersonal harm as a way to address that so like another instance came up where someone was you know offering a case, you know, in favor of like business unionism, and the caucus that I was a part of, which is more rank and file unionism, was using language that just like came down to ad hominem attacks that also aligned with like historical um misogynoir, right? And that's just wrong. And it's like, hmm. not okay. And so finding ways to say, we're gonna keep this at the level of political strategy and political difference and not let the things that plague our society also play like our, the way that we manage conflict in our union. Like that felt really, it feels important to say because harm happens, like conflict is going to happen. It's how we choose to approach it and resolve it.
4: Exactly. Yeah. It's important to, um, you know, it's important to recognize that, yeah, there's going to, people are going to have differences and, and, uh, there's uh, correct, like there, there's a proper way to have dis disagreements, political disagreements that, that doesn't, uh, resort to those types of things. So, uh, folks, I appreciate your time. You've all been very generous and, uh, we're going to be letting you go on a crazy screen looks like, uh, but (laughs) I appreciate every, I really appreciate everybody's time, um, These are, like I said, these are always my favorite shows to do. And it was an honor to be able to get all of y'all here. So thank you so much. Um, We, Michelle Eisen had to go early. Uh, We've still got Graham Gale from REI, uh, RWDSU Johnny from the Delta AFA, Lee from the UAW 2110.
2: Folks, thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, all right, so
4: now i'm gonna work some more on some uh so <laughs> some some frames, and we're gonna that be talking fantastic yeah that that was awesome, yep, <laughs> definitely a uh a candidate for best ups for sure so yeah, uh and really Joe enjoyed i enjoyed that. Yeah, I did too. And Joe, I appreciate you. Uh do you do you have any anything that, that you wanted to uh any comments that you had about that before we talk about stewards?
2: I've got a lot of thoughts, but I think we can weave them <laughs> into the conversation. It's all it's all the same
4: conversation, right? Just different parts of it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's right.
0: Well okay. Well Joe, then appreciate you joining us uh and like hanging out for a while and you know bearing with us. Um we mentioned this earlier in the show, before you were here, I am out with COVID, so I'm not in the studio to help uh, like I normally would be, so it's uh, been a little tougher on Jacob, especially with as many moving parts as we've had today, um, but you've done a great job, and uh, it's it's been well worth it, in my opinion. I think so, too. He
4: says he has COVID, but also he could just be one of those lazy union workers. Um...
0: Right. Well, talk to my steward
4: asshole
0: <laughs> all right folks that is it that's that
4: that's it we had we we went we went a little long uh but i think it was worth it i enjoyed it
0: yeah absolutely i'm I'm glad i i powered through i had the stamina um yeah. thank, i could not have done this on thursday but uh you know feeling feeling, feeling up to it was able for to do a marathon zoom today. I hope folks got a lot out of it. Uh, I know I did. And, uh, I'm really hoping that, you know, these segments are things that all of us can share with folks, you know, in the days and months and maybe even years ahead, uh, as we all try to build the labor movement, revive labor, um, as a force to be reckoned with in this country. So, yeah, I just it was an honor to have so many cool people on on today. Um, Really appreciate everyone who tuned in, everyone who liked, everyone who shared. Um, You know, I think I want to take this final moment just to encourage folks, uh, whatever you can do to support the Valley Labor Report, we really appreciate it. Um, This is a shoestring budget. Jacob and I don't take any salaries uh, from this project. and. you know we want it to be sustainable hmm. uh we want it to spread and to and to reach workers who who need to hear news and analysis for by and of working class people and um you know so whatever that looks like for you in terms of support if you're able to be a recurring donor that's fantastic even if it's you know 3 bucks a month if you're able to do a one time contribution That's really appreciated. Uh, If you can't afford to do any kind of donations, but chances are you can help us spread the word. You can, uh, you know, little things like giving us a five star review on the podcast app of your choice. um, Go on Facebook and invite your friends to like our page, uh, share the videos uh, on YouTube uh, and like those videos um i know some of y'all will are good about just commenting on our clips just to you know boost the engagement those little things like that really do make a big difference because you know we don't have the funds to uh to generate an audience right we we've got to be pretty organic in our growth um so you know with it being labor day weekend really just wanted to to plug that and push for any kind of support folks can give us, uh, cause we want to keep doing this. And, you know, we think it's valuable. Uh, and, and certainly I think some of y'all do as well, or you you wouldn't tune in every week. Um, but the key I think is to just like growing our unions, you know, growing this audience, if each one can reach one, uh, and keep that going, um, you know, we'll be in a really good place and hopefully we'll be here next labor day and do it all over again.
4: Yep, yep. I appreciate it. And uh, for folks listening on the podcast who aren't seeing the chat, the link to donate is tvlr.fm/donate. If you want to kick in a couple bucks, couple bucks once a month uh, to keep the show on the air, we'd really appreciate it. And if you want to get your local to sponsor the show, then like I said, reach out to me. Um, You can do that on our website, tvlr.fm/contact. And uh, till next week, then see you later. All power to the workers.